over 60 years ago, Don Richardson, his wife Carol, and their seven-month-old son moved deeply into the jungles of Papua New Guinea. They lived among a small tribe group known as the Sawi. Don learned the language. Carol treated the sick. And all of this was done to teach the Sawi people about Jesus. However, after time went on, they would notice that the people would not respond. The Sawi were headhunters and cannibals. And they lived in a constant state of war. One historian describes them as a people vastly different from Don and Carol's worldview. Saying, in their eyes, Judas, not Jesus, was the hero of the Gospels. Jesus was just a dupe to be laughed at. As one would expect, the motivation that brought this very young family to this remote part of the world quickly ran thin. Not knowing if it was worth the risk or the trouble, Dawn approached the tribe and explained that if the violence did not stop, that his family would pack up and leave. And this connected with the tribe. Not wanting to see the Richardsons leave, the warring tribes initiated an ancient ritual to guarantee that their fighting would stop. Each tribe would exchange an infant, a baby boy, with their enemies. The idea was this, by giving up your child to your enemies, you could secure peace. And by taking theirs as well. Peace was possible because neither would dare risk harming their own children by attacking each other. This peace child would not only secure the safety of each tribe, but it would bridge the cultural gap from the Richardsons to communicate the Gospel meaningfully to the Sawi people. Showing how God has given His Son to His enemies to make peace with them. And the Gospel took off like wildfire. I tried to see the growth that took place in this community and the best thing that I could find was as of 1980, the church there, among the people, the Sawi people, had grown from 30% of the tribe being members of the church to 60 people. 60% of the entire tribe claiming Jesus as Lord and Savior. In our day-to-day lives, we may not be under the threat of headhunters or cannibals, but the obstacles we do see and feel, they are all too great for us. And like the Richardsons, we must remember that the obstacles are never, ever, ever too significant for the Gospel to overcome. If you're anything like me, You could think of a hundred reasons not to share the Gospel with those around you. Today, I want us all to know 
that overcoming this barrier is far more simple than we all might think. It's simple because it's something that we should be and are already doing anyway. It's simple because the reason and the result of all our evangelism is for one reason and result alone. And that is worship. Please turn to Psalm 117. The psalmist cries, Praise the Lord all nations. Extol Him all peoples. For great is His steadfast love towards us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to You this morning, I pray that You would help us to see with precision. To see so clearly in our lives how a love and a joy and a fascination in who You are can explode into many, many Gospel preaching and sharing opportunities. Lord, help us to see this this morning. Guide us as we engage with the text, Lord, and please help me. In Jesus' name, Amen. In order to understand that worship is the reason and result of evangelism, we must first know that the goodness of God is designed to be known and praised everywhere. Not just here, but everywhere. This morning's passage points us to this most important and basic gospel sharing principle. That the God we are sharing, which we aim to introduce people to, is worthy of all our praise. He is worthy of all our affection and joy. He is worthy of our obsession and focus. He is worthy of time. He is worthy of our endurance. He is worthy of these and everything else that we have. The underlying issue of these two verses is simply how could we How could we possibly imagine appealing to those who don't know our God if we do not first ourselves find ourselves completely amazed at who He is? How could we do this? The implications for how we think about sharing the Gospel with the world around us are firmly rooted in our love and amazement for Christ. We share the Gospel Because we love the central figure of the Gospel, namely Jesus Christ. Even more, we share the Gospel because we know that the goodness of Christ is not just for us alone, but it's designed to be cherished by the nations and all people groups all over the globe and throughout all of history. The psalmist cries to the tribes of the earth to celebrate the One they have not heard of. The implications, these implications, are incredibly forward-thinking. As Calvin puts it uh, in his commentary on this, he says, God shall not be praised everywhere by the Gentiles because the knowledge of His character is confined to a small portion of land in Judea. But because it will spread over the whole world. 
That is the most logical step of knowing the beauty of our God is not to hide it under a bushel, as the song goes, or to keep it confined to our happy, comfortable circles. It is to expose the whole world to it. One of our biggest obstacles to sending the Gospel out is that we expect the world to come into the church to hear it. Brothers and sisters, this is completely a controllable thing. We can do something about this mistake. We can recognize that the world is not usually going to come here. But we can go to them. We can take the message to them. It is, it is to take great risks to see that people who don't know the glory of Christ can actually have it for themselves. And those risks, they are worth taking even if they are risks in the workplace or in the school parking lot, or in the gym, or in that weird holding cell at the gymnastics place that they shove all the parents in. It is even worth that great risk to cross that mighty chasm we call the driveway to talk to our neighbors. All of these, all of these and many more, are all risks that we can and must take to see the Gospel go and the nations praise Jesus. But we must take them not out of duty. Not because we have to. Not because Jeff Palin or anybody else is sitting up here telling you to do it. That's not why. We must take these risks because of blood-bought, Holy Spirit-empowered vision to see God worshipped not just here on this corner in Gilbert, but everywhere we go. To see Him praised and magnified and glorified in every people that speak every tongue and come from every nation. To see Him made much of everywhere. And we can know this, particularly in this passage, because of the two phrases used. In, the, in verse 1, the author commands, he says, give praise to the Lord. Every nation. This is important because the term here for nation is goyim. And that doesn't matter to you because you don't speak Hebrew. But you might know the term Gentile. That is, in the Jewish mind, everyone else. He clarifies this in the parallel line, extol Him all peoples. Literally, He commands, honor Him every tribe or people group. And as we learned in Jonah, among the Jews at least, at this time in the Old Testament, there is not much of a focus or passion towards seeing the nations come and join the neighborhood barbecues in Jerusalem. Sadly, when we look at the narrative of Israel's story, it's almost absent completely. However, this being the case is not the way their God, the God of Israel, feels about the nations. From the beginning, He has had the nations on His heart and it was through Israel, through the, the line of Israel that He would bless them. Through His people, the Gentiles would see and praise the Lord. It's all over your Bible. But how would this happen? 
How would the psalmist find ground to command uh, or appeal to the Gentiles and the rest of the world to celebrate the Lord, the God of Israel? The psalmist shows us two ways. He appeals to God's goodness to us and God's goodness in who He is. The first is seen in the beginning of verse 2. For great is His, the Lord's, steadfast love towards us. And so, what we do is we share with the nations. When we, take the, when we worship, when we celebrate Jesus, and we, we move to see all the nations celebrate Christ, one of the first things we do, according to the psalmist, is we share how great the Lord is to us. We accomplish this aim to see God adorned everywhere by worshiping Him ourselves. That is, we go first. And as we go, we share how great He is. How great He has been to us. We tell people who don't know His goodness what we know firsthand. What we know firsthand is never a small thing and it is powerful when you speak to someone who doesn't know for themselves. It is the stuff that leaves us in amazement and admiration when we hear testimonies of the way that the Lord has changed lives all around us. For the psalmist, this is summed up in a small line composed of only four Hebrew words that take an entire history of the people of Israel to unpack. He says, for great or mighty is His steadfast love towards us. The phrase steadfast love is a common thing in our reading of, of Scripture. It's often in the Psalms and, and many other places in the Old Testament. And if you think about what it conveys in English, it gives the sense that God's love remains strong and enduring. These things are true. But more can be conveyed than this, and it certainly means more to the people the psalmist represents. The, the phrase comes from a sense of loyalty. The kind of loyalty that comes or is found only within a family circle or among those who have covenanted together. We know what this means. This is the kind of thing that keeps parents up at night when their children are out late. This is the kind of thing that will make you drop everything you're doing to run and to help a friend in need. This is the kind of thing that reminds us that blood is thicker than water. That causes us to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. The psalmist is not just citing God's super great love. No. He is identifying, he is recalling in the history of a stubborn people, he is, he is thinking about God's patience, his kindness, his ever present deliverance which on their own are great, but is special and important to them particularly because those things always come in the context of their unfaithfulness. 
when they drop the ball and the Lord's there with His mercy, that's steadfast loving kindness. When He's always there to pick them up in their filth, that's steadfast loving kindness. This is an amazing testimony. It is a testimony of a people that can look back at who they are and, and the way that they've been formed and they can say, wait, what about that one time? Nope, He didn't abandon us there. Well, what about that? That was pretty bad. Nope, He didn't abandon us there. Well, do you remember that one time when we were up again? Nope, he, he delivered us there. Yeah, but what about that failure? Yeah, but He taught us so much there. He has never left them. He's always been with them. Because He loves and is committed to His people. And he is, he, this testimony reigns and it is loud and it rings through the ears of the nations. And that is the testimony. Because like the psalmist, when we think, when we think about this testimony of loving kindness, endurance, and patience in the midst of our unfaithfulness, you should hear the bells ring in your ear reminding you of the goodness of God towards us. Brothers and sisters, we know this kind of love and patience ourselves. It is not distant. He is good to us. And we too, as His people who know this, can make this appeal because of no doing of ours. But He chose us and caused us to be born again. And that is an amazing thing that none of us can comprehend. There is no context in which someone calls somebody out of faithfulness to be His people. We are all called out of rebellion. We are all called out of our own ways, out of our own preferences. We are all called out of our disobedience and our dismissing of His ways and overriding of His statutes. All of us who know Jesus personally are called out of wickedness. So we too know the steadfast loving kindness of the Lord. If you want, we as individuals, and certainly as a congregation, can look, this is an amazing thing, we can look to the world around us, down the street, across the the globe, wherever. We can look to the world around us and with one humble voice, we can say, if you want to see a good reason to see and savor Jesus Christ, look at us. Look at how good He is to us. To us who have rebelled. To us who can't seem to learn. To us who seem to draw on grace all so often. Look at us who know who the Lord is and knows that there is something profound about His continued goodness towards us. About being able no matter what our background is, to know that we truly have no business being in God's family simply except for the fact that we are. We find ourselves here. We're here. Not because we were born into it. Not because our family drug us to church, but because something changed and that was by the doing of the Lord. And so when you tell people 
You want to think about all the obstacles that will get in your way to think about how we share the good news of Christ? Just start with the easy stuff. Run through the list of the amazing works that you have and that I have experienced in my own and your own life seeing what God has done and how good He is to us, brothers and sisters. Secondly, when we think about a vision for seeing Jesus worshipped everywhere, we share how great He is. We talked about how, how good He is to us, and now we're looking at the next point, which is how great He is. Seeing Christ worshipped everywhere happens when we simply can tell people how good God is everywhere we go. It's that simple. He certainly is good to us, and that's no small thing, but we should not take too lightly that He is worthy simply because of who He is. He is worthy of everything we have because He speaks and worlds come together. He is worthy of our awe because He commands the storm to settle down like a dog. He is worthy of praise because He exists without dependence or anyone or anything. He lacks absolutely nothing and in Himself He is absolutely satisfied. He is worthy of worship because He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And we do not have to worry that He will change His mind regarding His love for us or that He will give up on His plan. No, we can count on Him because there is no change in the Lord. He is worthy of our praise because He is holy like no other. He is holy like no other. Sin and corruption cannot survive in His presence because His holiness will not be compromised. He is worthy because He took on flesh and invited the sins of all His people to climb on His back and He marched up with the hill with them to face God's wrath. He is worthy of praise and glory because when the wickedness of the world and the wrath of God were exhausted on Him, He did not shrink back. But He followed through to the end. He is worthy of our admiration because when the plague of death took Him, it was it did not overcome it did not overcome him and he stands brothers and sisters do you understand what we say he stands even now in victory over our greatest enemy he is worthy because there will be no deed no thought no movement Nothing at all that will not be called into account of His perfect judgment. All of His attributes are in one, with one mighty voice, call to the nations and to the world and to us here in Gilbert to do one thing. Praise Him. To praise Him. Yet, among these, there is one mentioned by the psalmist that over and over again shows itself to us. That is, the, His faithfulness. The psalmist says, His faithfulness endures forever. Earlier we spoke of God's covenant faithfulness. And this is similar. But I wonder 
if we should consider that His faithfulness is great because His faithfulness is first and foremost to Himself. Throughout the Scripture, we see time and time again God reminding us that when He moves or He acts in history, He does it for His own name's sake. I think the passage in Isaiah 48, verses 9-11 through is particularly helpful in seeing this. The Lord says to the people, for My name's sake, I will defer My anger. For the sake of My praise, I will restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for My own sake. And for, for My own sake, I do it. And for how should My name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. It is His faithfulness to His his own name. His commitment to His glory that we can point to. And we can know He's amazing. He's incredible. It is a wonder, it is the wonder of all of life that we can marvel at. When we think about everything that's been made, everything that's ever happened, we can sit there and we can look. And as John Piper said one time, it is as if the Lord created everything so that He could go public with how amazing and glorious He is. And we as His people get to look and to see and our jaws just hang out on the floor in amazement. He is perfectly loving. And those of us who know His love know that it exceeds all of our expectations. His passion for His glory and love for us, they don't compete, but instead, it is His glory and His passion for His glory that He pushes us to knowing that the most loving thing He could do for us as His people is to cause us to know Him and to worship Him more and more and more. There is nothing better for us to have He is the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. He provided the first word and He will have the last word. No matter the intent of man in human history, we can know, as the Apostle Paul said so clearly, that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess, both on the earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, our Lord is worthy of our praise here. But He is absolutely worthy of our praise everywhere. So we appeal together, like the psalmist, to the world, to every nation, every people group, to praise the Lord to sing His praise. This is evangelism. This is sharing the Gospel. It is the outpouring of worship in God's people. It is the combustion with the heart within the hearts of those who have been or are being transformed. 
of those who have caught a glimpse of the beauty of Christ and they cannot contain it. It is much more than singing, though that is a great way to worship. It is far more than fascination, though it will captivate our imaginations. And it certainly goes farther than being a fan because it will cost you your life. Worshiping the risen Christ, being fixed on Jesus, is about having a global vision for seeing the glory of Christ celebrated not just in heaven one day when we get there, but everywhere here and now. It is God's good pleasure to see this mission done by people like you and me. All sorts. From all kinds of backgrounds. With all kinds of problems and needing all kinds of grace. It is His good pleasure. Because who better to speak of the amazing work that God has done in us or how amazing He is than us. We do this as a church in two primary ways. Two ways that you can leave this room this morning and you can put into action immediately. The first is, is we tell everyone we can about Jesus and what He has done for the world. He has paid for His people's sins by suffering and laying down His life for them. For sins that He did not commit. How three days after His death, He came back to life demonstrating that He had satisfied the judgment of God towards His people. How the Spirit of God will transform all of us who believe into His image. This series that we've been doing, talking about evangelism, has been simply designed to encourage all of us to take this seriously and to be encouraged to go and to share Christ with others in faith. Right? Trusting the Lord that people will respond and to be encouraged to move in faith. There are numerous ways for us to do this as a church. We can invite neighbors over to our homes or we can go to their homes. We can, we can make moves to build meaningful relationships with people we interact with in our normal routines. We can invite people to church or youth group or small groups. If you have a heart for the nations, there are actually people in this congregation who would love to connect you with international students that come in every year on the campus of Arizona State. Right here. In the same room. There are far more ways to tell the world about Jesus than there are obstacles that we will find in our way. The second thing that we can do is we, as a church, look at places that do not have sovereign grace churches and by God's grace, we plant them. We don't just talk about evangelism, but we take risks to see it happen in places where it's needed. This goes further than a pastor and his family packing up their things and moving. This is a church-wide effort. It is a family ordeal. This is, this is where families 
that are in the pews now or, or elsewhere can, or that are part of this church consider deeply what it is to leave Gilbert and to go where the Gospel needs to be shared in communities like the ones you're in even now. And today, today marks a significant milestone in this effort for this church. Ten years ago, on this Sunday, John Payne and a handful of families that are tied to people in this room and many of you, they packed up their stuff, they moved to a suburb of Austin, Texas, and they planted Redemption Hill Church. Though once a little church plant with just a few people, God has since powerfully worked through people just like you and me. And now, there is a community that is learning who Jesus is and what it is to be fixed on Him. We have a short, short video clip to show you from John. Good morning, Center Church. Uh, if you haven't met, my name is John Payne. I'm the lead pastor of Redemption Hill Church in Ramos, Texas, on the north side of Austin. And if you're newer to your church, uh, you might not know the legacy that your church has in church planting. But before I was the lead pastor at Redemption Hill, uh, over 10 years ago, I was a pastor on staff there in Gilbert with Rich and some of the other men on the pastoral team. And we felt the call of the Lord to plant a church. And 10 years ago, your church in Gilbert sent out a church plant team of six families, including myself and my wife and our three children,
Amen. We are grateful for this. Church planting is part of our culture as a church, and it's part of being uh, within Sovereign Grace churches. We send normal people, captivated by Christ, to a place where Sovereign Grace churches don't exist. And as we consider our call this morning to see the nations worship Christ, Please join us as we seek, as the leadership team, as we seek the Lord about planting a church near Boise, Idaho. I have personally spoken with several pastors in the area, and I have been moved to hear two things. First, I always ask them, is this a good idea? Is there a need for a church like Sovereign Grace to go and be within the area of Boise, and they always look at me and say, absolutely, please come. And the second thing, is when I ask them, what is God doing in that place? Tell me, help me to understand what God is doing in that place. Most recently, I was encouraged incredibly by a pastor who in Boise said to me very simply, it is unusual how people are responding to the Gospel. They are preaching the Gospel to people who have almost no church background, no biblical background, or they are devastated when they see the things they've put their hope in crumble. And when they hear the news of redemption that comes in the blood of Christ, they are wanting to see Christ change their lives. Brothers and sisters, would you please join the leadership team in praying fervently that we would be able to have a piece of that pie. That we would be able to join in those churches to see the Gospel grow and be, see disciples made in Boise, Idaho and the surrounding areas. Please join with us. We need people. We need families. Single men. Women. Senior saints. Youth. We need people who want to help others like themselves meet Jesus and see His beauty. People who have a vision for new communities to become fixed on Jesus. We ask as a team that if you love and cherish what God is doing here at Center Church Gilbert, that you would pray for guidance and wisdom on how we can see that very same mission in the Boise area. Please pray for the leadership team and the regional leaders as we seek wisdom and instruction from the Lord in these things. Center Church, we have a story to tell. There will always be obstacles to sharing what we have. Even more, we will always have a Savior who loves us dearly. When we share our love for Him, we will see our obstacles go from mountains to molehills. Not because we're special or clever, but because we have a great God who is worthy of all our praise. There is a world around us outside our doors that is waiting to meet Him. They're waiting 
to meet Him. Let us call them to join in the chorus and praise the Lord God with us. Pray with me. Lord, I pray that as a people, a people who love to celebrate You, a people that look at You and when we read our Bibles or we watch the way that You work in our life, it stirs our affections so much that we are compelled to talk about it. That we're compelled to sing songs. That we're compelled to write songs. That we're compelled to call our brothers and our sisters. That we're compelled to write. That we're compelled to praise You. To worship You. To be transformed by You. Because we see how amazing You are and how good You are to us. God, I pray that as a people, evangelism sharing the Gospel, taking the Gospel to the nations, would simply be the fullest expression and purpose behind our worship. Lord, that our worship would lead to taking the good news of who You are to those who don't know You yet. And that we would desire to see those who do not know You yet celebrate You in a grand chorus at Your return. Help us, Lord. We need Your help to see beyond the obstacles. We need Your help to see all that You are capable of and what You can do and how You love to show us Your ways. Teach us as a people to be faithful and grow in worship. In Jesus' name, Amen.